0: talk about today, I can't think of anything that moves God to act more in our lives than the subject that will be addressed this morning. I also want to make a confession to you that I'm like any other pastor. Uh, The amount of good that a pastor can do you is either multiplied or divided by the amount of respect that you have for them. That really is true. You don't respect Uh, or have regard for the the person that's serving you in ministry, they can't really help you. Uh, You'll question their motives. And uh, that divides the amount of good or the impact they're able to provide in your life. And we live in a day and age where people seem to not really care much about what people think about them anymore. You don't believe that? Get on Facebook. Amen. Amen. I'm serious. Some of the stuff that people are doing out there and acting like they're proud of it, they don't even think, you know, a couple of years down the road, that might have some consequences that could affect them. Hey, Amen. You make a job application and post something on Facebook where you've got a bong in your hand, don't be surprised if they don't hire you. I mean, you know, they, they, they research Facebook these days when you make an application for a job. You put it out there, they're going to look at it. Amen. And you look at some of this debacle, as you've heard me refer to the preachers of L.A. thing, and you could get the impression that the average pastor doesn't really care anymore. That really is not the case. Most pastors are very sincere and try very hard to maintain a position of integrity and honesty before their people because they know they will not substantially help that person in any kind of way if that person loses regard or respect for them. Now, on the other hand, we're subject to slander, innuendo, gossip, all of those other factors. And the reason that that is so negatively impacting is because if someone can rob you of the regard you have for the office of the one that's serving you in ministry, then they limit what that person can do for you and there's a spiritual consequence connected with that. Because of that, in these years that I have been here, like any pastor, I have shied away from the subject that I will talk about this morning. Uh, I've done so because I do not want to be positioned or caricatured as one of these money-grabbing preachers. But I think that in these years you've gotten to know me. All of these years I've been here... And um, I'm a person of simple means. I've said it before. I take a salary that's about a third that of the the, the amount of a salary most pastors at pastor this size take. And I'm very happy with that. So don't think I'm bumping right now pushing for a promotion or a raise. I, I don't. I've never asked for one in all these years. I'm happy. I'm doing what I love and I love what I'm doing. Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm having the time of my life. And one of our men was very kind and paid me a compliment and said, you look good. Do you feel as good as you look? I said, better. Amen. (laughs) I'm serious. I love what I do. I'm having a time. And I I mentioned that only to say that I hope that you are aware that I have stood on the high moral ground on this matter long enough that I think I can talk about it now and I'm willing to run the risk of somebody misunderstanding the reason I'm willing to run the risk is I feel like I've I've actually done you an injustice. My personal feelings about this subject are so strong that I think if I, by not mentioning it maybe as much as I should have, I've possibly robbed some of you of an opportunity to be blessed. And for that I apologize. But I've had to weigh, you know, this this thing about you know, you don't want to speak about it too much, and but it, but if you don't, people don't grasp the the faith message behind it, and they don't see the benefit of it. And but if you talk about it as much as you need to, that they can see and understand. And there's all these people out there that that then are going to talk about you you're just interested in the wrong things, and that cuts the the amount of good you're able to do that person down to such, it reduces it so low that you're wondering where's the happy medium there. And I'm going to just tell you up front that in the stewardship campaign we're in, I'm going to talk about finances this morning. So if that's offensive to you, you might want to be dismissed right now <laughs> and slip out because I'm warning you up front that I'm going to go ahead and talk about it this morning. <laughs> Amen. We always hear that we should give. And I don't know that in the course of my life I've ever heard anybody ever explain the fundamental theological reasons as to why we should. They say you should. They tell us that we should. They tell us what it means. But they don't really get down into a sound theological basis or foundation to build that message upon And I'm going to go to an unusual place in the Scripture today. I'm going to go to a text that talks about murder. Numbers 35, 29 through 34 It's where I'll begin. I'm not going to talk about murder today. I'm going to go to a text that talks about it. What I want you to notice is what happens when certain, well, not just certain sins. There's actually a whole number of sins that are mentioned in other places In this particular place, it mentions murder, but others are mentioned elsewhere. Notice what happens to the land when sin is committed. These things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover... You shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death, and you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. That's an altogether different message. I'm not even going to address that about cities of refuge. So you shall not pollute the land. Here we go. So you shall not pollute the land where you are. For blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, notice it again, do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. Father, I ask you to please speak a word today that will cause us to understand why your teaching and scripture is so important regarding the matter of finances. We don't want to play games. We don't want to use little tactics that manipulate and move people. We don't want to deal with emotion. We want the scriptural facts from your word. And I ask that you would help me to be able to articulate those and the congregation to receive them. And everybody shouted and said, Amen. Amen. The scripture teaches that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Your thoughts and what you believe about a subject actually determine your actions relative to that subject. Would you agree? What you think about a subject determines your response to that subject. People also think in different ways. Would you agree with that? Amen. For example, men and women think differently from one another. Would you agree with that? Husband's text message to his wife. Honey, I got hit by a car outside the office. Paula brought me to the hospital. They have been doing some tests and taking x-rays. The blow to my head, though very serious, will not cause any permanent or lasting injury but I have three broken ribs, a broken arm, a compound fracture of the left leg, and they may have to amputate my right foot. Wife's response, who is Paula? (laughs) Notice who's laughing the loudest, it's the ladies. Does anybody relate to what I just got through saying? People are confused today and they don't think correctly about giving because they do not understand why God chose the biblical principle of tithe and offerings. Sometimes we actually, as human beings, rely too much on our own intellect when we should simply accept God's word at face value. If it says something, just believe it. We don't. We question it. We're taught to be inquisitive. You know, inquiring minds want to know. We're we're taught to search for reasons why. And there's some things in Scripture that you simply cannot figure out. They're too high above the capacity of the human mind to be able to comprehend them. As I said last Sunday, you don't believe that. Just go to Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You got that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You figure that one out for, for me. Then you come talk to me about Genesis 1 and 2 on. Because most people are going to get stumped right there at the very first verse. Amen. Truth of the matter is, as I said, we should just simply accept God's word. I'm going to do my best to go beyond just accepting that and give you a theological foundation. I want to first of all say that God did not choose that we give him tithes and offerings because he needed our money. I want to make that clear. Or because his church needed money. You don't give tithes and offerings to buy a blessing as some uh, so-called evangelist would infer. Send me $57 and you'll get 57 blessings or whatever. And tithing is not just an Old Testament practice either. Neither is it just a command that was given under the law. Am Am anybody hearing me? Anyone who teaches any of the things that I just got through mentioning is declaring their ignorance of God's Word and should not be taken seriously. And I'm serious about that, that you shouldn't take them seriously. If you choose to believe in or embrace any of those teachings I've just mentioned, you do so to your own detriment and hurt. God chose the methodology of blessing us by having us give tithes and offerings Because it works, and when it's done right, it works every time. And it's actually very rare in life that you find something that works every single time. Very rare. Most of the time, situations are always in a state of flux. They're changing, they're evolving, and they require that you adapt and you improvise. You also have to be able to make mid-course corrections if you want what worked yesterday to continue to work today. And so you're always searching for a methodology that works. Did you hear about the lady that was on trial for killing her husband with a hammer while he was eating his dinner? The prosecutor was asking her, Isn't it true that you have been married twice before and that both of your previous husbands died from eating poisonous mushrooms? That's true, she replied. It was very unfortunate. Well, then. The prosecutor demanded, how do you explain this husband dying from being hit over the head by a hammer? And she answered, well, he wouldn't eat mushrooms. amen. (laughs) You know? Sometimes you have to improvise. You have to adapt. God never has to adapt or improvise to anything. The reason is his word works every time because he's so smart, he's figured it all out in the beginning, doesn't learn anything. No matter how much circumstances may change, his word is still forever settled in the heavens. I want to talk to you today about why faith-filled giving works. We always hear we should give. I want to talk to you about why. There's this amazing story in the book of uh, Joshua about a little tiny town called AI, and it teaches us an incredible truth about why God asked us to give. Listen, you might be surprised, because the story of Israel is a story that is immediately relevant to each one of us. I want to to examine this. The history of Israel is literally a history of how God brought these people from poverty and need to abundance and glory from oppression and slavery to prominence and fortune. It is a true rags-to-riches story in every sense of the word, a story of elevation and supernatural favor as the children of Israel were supernaturally lifted by God from abject poverty and enslavement to unbelievable fortune. But this story also parallels how God brought us out of bondage as believers. We were Old Testament Israel in bondage to Pharaoh. And God brought us through the Red Sea. Remember, Paul makes that comparison. They were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea, referencing spirit baptism and water baptism. And uh, that, that literally is true. We came out of bondage. We have been baptized with God's Spirit, baptized in water. If you haven't, you need to do both. And God promises us that as believers, we are moving into our promised land, which is a new life. Not a life of bondage, but a life of privilege and a life of abundance. Our promised land is because is given to us because God wants His children to be blessed. Can I hear somebody say, Amen? amen. When we're converted and become His children, he, he wants us to be blessed, wants our lives to reflect that. All God asked in the case of Israel was that when they crossed over Jordan, they give him one little city, the city of Jericho, which was the first city they came to when they crossed over Jordan. Why? As we see when we study this, there was a reason God required this of Israel. And unlike you and me, you need to understand one thing about God up front. He always has a reason for what he does. Oh, always he has a reason. You're going to find out when you study this story with me that giving God the tithe or the first fruits in faith actually removes the curse that is upon your blessing. And I want to talk to you this morning about the curse that's on your promised land. Amen. You say, a curse is on my promised land? It it is. The Bible teaches it, and I'm going to show it to you. God promised the children of Israel the whole of the promised land, a land that flowed with milk and honey, with wells they had not dug and houses they hadn't built and barns that were full of harvest they had not reaped. He also promises to bless us in the same way. But all he asked was, give me this one city. Joshua 6, 17 through 19. This is what the Lord's word says. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. You see that? It and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are with her in the house because she hid the messengers that we sent. This is Joshua's instruction from the word God gave him. Joshua's relating this to Israel. And you by all. All means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. The word accursed there literally means appointed to destruction. God said, the first city you come to is appointed to destruction, and I want it. I'm going to show you why. In Joshua 7 and 11... After they disobeyed God, Achan wanted his part, wanted it now, didn't trust God that I'll get it later. It's here in my hands right now. Bird in hand, you know, worth two in the bush. I got it right now. I'll just keep it, God. That's what I, you don't have to give it to me later. I got mine. I'll keep it right now. Now, what was wrong with that? He worked for it. He fought for it. He had journeyed in there, was faced the, the army that he faced, the city. You would think that, that, that he had an absolute right to that. And yet the scripture says that when he kept the accursed thing, that curse was more contagious than Ebola. You would rather sit on a bus seat next to somebody with Ebola than you would keep what God are, has, has put a curse on. And listen to this. Even though it was only one man... Israel went on to Ai, they were defeated, humiliated by a little bitty village that they should have, I mean, should have just walked right over like it wasn't even there. The mighty, invincible army of Israel should have have won the day without even raising a sweat. But they were defeated, a number of their people were killed, and this is what God told Joshua as he and Israel... In defeat, lay on their faces, mourning before God. God said, Israel has sinned, and they have transgressed. Look at the multiple pronouns here that all refer to more than one party. Achan was the one that did it, but God said Israel sinned. They, notice the plural pronoun, have transgressed my covenant which I commanded them, for they... Have even taken some of the accursed things. And have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their stuff. Wait a minute. God get your facts straight. It wasn't they anything. It was one man. What you need to understand is. That because Achan had taken of the accursed things. As we're going to see. He kept a curse upon their promised land. That affected everybody there. Amen. What happened to Israel was the direct result of one man not understanding the theological reasons behind why God requires the first fruit. God wanted to remove the curse from their blessing. The land was cursed, as we'll see. And it wasn't just Jericho that was cursed. Let me explain. In Genesis, not only was Adam cursed, cursed when he sinned. But guess what? Most folk don't stop and think about it. The earth itself was cursed because of Adam's rebellion. I need somebody that knows their Bible to help me out right now. Though it is clearly stated in the book of Genesis, most people fail to realize that sin has cursed the very world we live in, not just the people who live in it. Oh. And in cursing the world we live in, its resources are cursed. We always think of, of judgment as something only man is going to face. That's not true. The world is facing judgment. You mean nature itself? The very earth we live in has been defiled and is going to face judgment. I'm going to show that to you in the Bible. In Genesis 317 18, God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground. For your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. What was cursed? The ground was cursed. Isaiah 24, 5 through 6, the earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws. How did the earth get cursed? Man who had dominion over it transgressed God's laws, changed the ordinance, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the curse, notice what it said, say it with me, has devoured the earth and those who dwell in it are desolate. What did God say? The earth, the curse is done, devoured what? The earth, the land, amen. Not only was Adam cursed when he sinned, but the world was also cursed when he failed. Adam was given legal jurisdiction over the earth. God gave him authority and dominion. Adam turned around and gave that authority to the devil. God no longer had the right to go get it back, Because if I give you a house and I sign it over to you and you give it to a con artist, I can't go to suit and get it back. You signed it over. It was yours to do with what you wanted to do. And this is why God's hands were tied. Satan took over dominion of the world. He became the God of this world. That's what the Bible said. Prince and power of the air. And Jesus had to come into the world as Adam's descendant. Why? Because if you give the house away I gave to you, I can't go to court to sue to get it back, but your your, your your children can if something happens to you. Adam died, passed off the scene, and Jesus came along and said, I'm Adam's son, I'm suing to get it back. Amen. Well, somebody in the building say, that's right. Now, this is the the divine story of of the incarnation. God had to come in the form of man, the son of man, to be able to get control back. Now, can your promised land be cursed? Not only does our text state that it can, but in Leviticus chapter 18, God told Israel the reason that he was removing the inhabitants from the land and giving it to Israel was because they had defiled the land even more than it already was when Adam sinned by continuing their sinfulness and their abominations amen and he goes on to say if the ground or he goes on to say that if this land is cursed that it's going to vomit out its inhabitants can you see this it's going to spew them out the land itself the promised land you got to get this now the promised land that Israel is moving into is going to vomit out the people who are there Oh, wait, I, I, this is heavy duty. Have you ever felt like your blessing was running away from you and, and like you, somebody else was getting your promotion and you couldn't chase one down if you tried? Maybe there's a reason that your blessing is avoiding you. In this case, it was avoiding the people who lived there, and there was a reason for it, as Adam C., we, of course, now watch this unfold, are cursed by his disobedience. And when that sin continues, not only was the sin that defiled the ground causing the ground to be cursed that Adam committed, but all of the generations of Adam's seed that have lived upon the earth have continued to defile it further. See what I'm saying here? Until in Leviticus 18, God said the land is vomiting them out, they That's how bad it's become. Now, what do we do to get rid of the curse that's upon us because Adam's sin? Well, Christ went to the cross and took our curse upon himself. Galatians 3 and 13, Christ has redeemed us, Adam's seed, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, "'Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree.'" I don't know about you, but I'm so glad Jesus took my judgment upon himself, amen. I'm so glad the Lord paid the price for me. Anybody in the building happy, you don't have to go to the judgment and face what your life was all about. God gave his son and put it our sins under the blood of Jesus Christ. Our lives are hid with him in Christ. Amen. Amen. We experience freedom from the curse by surrendering our life to God and believing in the efficaciousness of the blood of Jesus. We only can experience salvation by accepting that he died in our place. Just knowing it is not enough. Just making mental assent to the historical fact isn't good enough. You've got to believe on him. Amen. Whosoever will, let him come. But you need to understand that God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. You don't receive the benefits of the cross until you believe. Have I established that? Come on, help me out here. Anybody know you've got to believe to be saved? Amen. The Bible tells us that just as we had Christ offered for our sins and that we must believe on him to be saved, guess what? This world still carries its defilement or its sin, and that too must be atoned for. In Second Peter 3 and 12, we are told that we're looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Verse 13, likewise we, according to God's promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which dwelleth, dwells righteousness. God cleanses us with his blood. The earth is going to be cleansed by fire. We read that in a number of passages in the scripture, and I've only read you one for the purpose of conserving a little bit of time. But as I said, just like Israel couldn't move into their promised land uh, that unless they believed and obeyed God, they had to believe him to take care of them. Those that didn't believe died in the wilderness. You and I are not saved unless we believe in the saving blood of Jesus Christ. But how do you deal with a curse that's on your promised land? This is what's possible uh, for us to under, to grasp or understand this morning and therefore the reason for, behind this, this teaching. Uh, there, you, you need to also know this. Not only how do we deal with it, you need to know that we can actually add to the curse that's on our promised land. Amen. God, in explaining in our text that one could, that that text about murder and so forth, that the land itself is defiled when murder is committed, that is not addressed. Uh, He goes on to say there were a number of other sins that you could do that defiled the land. Leviticus chapter 18 speaks of a whole number of these that are sins that are actually very commonly practiced in our culture today. You look at those, it'll make you wonder, like, oh, what's this world headed toward? And in Deuteronomy 21, for example, God is so serious about this that if an unsolved murder was committed, there was even an elaborate process where they would take a heifer and the elders of the city closest to it would lay their hands on it and pray and say, we don't know anything about this murder, and they would then break its neck so that that heifer could die to atone for the land itself. Amen. God is very serious that you can curse the land. That's what Adam did in Genesis. That curse has never been addressed. Now, someone might even ask, but why hasn't it been addressed? The answer to that is simple. To be able to be saved, as I said, you've got to believe. Only man has that capacity. The earth does not have the capacity to believe in God. Hello, somebody. The earth can't say, okay, I accept the death of Jesus for the the defilement that I carry. No, it's inanimate. It doesn't have life in and of itself. It doesn't have cognitive thought. It doesn't have the ability to be able to believe God for salvation. So the first reason that God did not address the sin of the land when Jesus died is because the earth doesn't have the ability to be able to respond to it. But there's a second reason. That is is that even though Christ died on the cross, guess what? There are many who do not accept his death. They haven't come a saving knowledge of God, and how many sins have been committed in this world over the last 2,000 years. If he had atoned for the earth 2,000 years ago, he'd have a whole passel of sins to atone for again. Am I making any sense to anybody right now? Uh, I need a better amen than that. If he had wiped the slate clean 2,000 years ago, there's a whole nother slate now that exists because of all of the defilement that has gone on in the world. Now, Israel was an Old Testament type of the New Testament believer. And God said, I want that city of Jericho because what I want to do is take the curse that's on the land that my people can enjoy the promised land when they get there. The land has vomited out the people that are in it right now, and the curse has not only continued from Adam till now, but it's gotten bigger. It's been added to by the practices of the people who live here. And so God said, this is what you do. I'll fix it for you. I'll process it so that I take the curse off the rest of your promised land. Give me the first city you come to and don't you take one thing because if you do, you're creating access for the virus to infect the rest of everything. Oh, I'm preaching better than you're responding right now. You're exposing the rest of your promise to the virus or the contagion that I'm trying to rid this land of. Most people don't realize it. But but there are many things in life that need to be processed before you can enjoy them. Did you know that almonds, for example, are actually deadly? Anybody know that? Almonds are deadly. You know what they contain? Cyanide. You know almonds have to be heated, and if you eat almonds, bitter almonds before they're heated, they can kill you. I'm from Louisiana. There's nothing better than a good pot of butter beans, dried lima beans. I'm talking about the big kinds. You throw some pork tasso in there. Oh my heavens! You got a leftover ham bone? You want to drop in that thing? You, you cook a pot of rice with that and you really want to make me happy, get some homemade biscuits and put on the table and I can, all I can say is we're not gonna have much conversation. All I'm gonna say is pass me the Louisiana hot sauce. That's, that's all the conversation you're gonna get out of me for a while, but we will have some good fellowship. But do you know lima beans are deadly? You didn't know that. They also contain cyanide. If you don't cook lima beans, they can actually kill you. Didn't realize it. Go, go Google it. Pull it up. The 10 most poisonous foods that we live on. Same thing with green potatoes. Anybody in the building know green potatoes will kill you? If you don't know it, I'm teaching you something. There are a number of people that die every year right here in the good old U.S. of A. from eating green potatoes. Green potatoes contain a deadly poison called glycoalkaloid. And you have to be sure you don't eat green potatoes. Anybody, your grandmama used to give you castor oil when you were a kid? Uh Uh-huh. A medicinal supplement supposed to make you healthy? I think it just tasted so bad it made you claim you were better. Amen. So you didn't have to eat any more of that stuff. Do you know that castor beans are one of the deadliest things in our nation? One castor bean can kill a man, four will kill a grown horse over a thousand pounds. I'm not making that up. They have to be processed before the poison can become palatable. If you don't process it, what is a blessing will actually kill you. And God said, going into your promised land, you need to realize there's a poison in your blessing. There's a curse. I want you to give me Jericho that I can take the curse from the land. I can process it where you can enjoy your blessing, amen. Oh, hallelujah. Israel did not do that, at least Achan did not. The result was is that the poison seeped over into the rest of the promise and Israel was defeated by a little bitty village we never should have heard of in all of history. The mighty army of Israel brought to a standstill by one man's sin. And God said he took of the accursed thing and he passed it on to the nation. Amen. I wanted to process the poison out of your promised land and the defilement the land carries, but you wouldn't let me. The land itself will not be atoned for until the end of time and what you will find references in your Bible mentioning as the day of the Lord. So understand, you and I, our atonement date was when Christ died. But for the land, there's a future date when it will be purged by fire and by judgment. Here's the problem. Our promised land is in this world right now. Oh, I realize we got a home in the sky somewhere in the sweet by and by or whatever, you, however you might want to phrase it, but I want to enjoy God's favor right now. I want to walk in prosperity right now. Why is it? that some folk are being defeated by things that they ought to be defeating. Oh, hear what I'm talking about. Why is somebody else getting your promotion? Why is sickness beating you down, divorce, problems in your home? You're a child of God. And you say, I can't win for losing. If it wasn't for bad luck, I wouldn't have any luck at all. It's not supposed to be that way. Maybe there's something going on. Maybe your promise is still cursed. Ah uh, Haggai 1, 6 through 7. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. The Lord Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Maybe you haven't given God what he needs that he can remove the curse from your promise. God's not after your money. He doesn't need your resources to even think that is ridiculous. It's about can you be blessed or not? It's not that God needs your blessing. Oh, somebody in the building say amen. amen. So the son, you say, what about those who do not tithe and are so blessed? And, and you mentioned somebody like, you can mention someone like, like maybe, Donald Trump and I don't know I'm not judging him and maybe he's a believer and I just don't know it maybe he just doesn't look like it maybe he's in the Lord's secret service or something you know and he's undercover for God maybe that's what it is Uh, I don't want to judge him I'm not his judge but you look at people like that and you say how does he get blessed and he's not doing what he's supposed to do in every way. Well, first of all, you're not the first person rather to question things like that. Psalm 73, look at it and you'll hear something interesting. Verses two through three. The psalmist said, but as for me, my steps had almost stumbled. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Because I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What gets a lot of folk down and they question God in all of this, well, God, I see others that don't tithe. First of all, you don't know that they're not tithing. Some of them out there are. Did you know LL Cool J is a tither? Did you know that? Did you know a lot of those people tithe? Did you know that Bill Gates is tithing? Do you know Warren Buffett is tithing? I'm serious. You didn't know any of that. You're just like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, before you say, I want to be like them, maybe you should realize what they're doing. I'm serious. But just in case you didn't get the message, you're not the first one to question how some people can be blessed who aren't serving God. But look, The psalmist then went on to the house of God in Psalm 73. I think it's verse 17, isn't it? Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then understood I therein. You see somebody that's blessed right now, look at your neighbor and say, the story's not over yet. Would you do that? Not over yet. Last chapter hasn't been written yet. So don't be modeling yourself after people that are not serving God just because they're blessed today. The point I'm making is, yes, Achan got home. He had his wedge of, uh, of silver, his shekel of gold, his Babylonian garment, but guess what happened? Before it was all over with, the rug was yanked out from underneath him. The curse on his promised land caught up with him. And it's going to happen to every person that doesn't honor God. Verse 18, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How are they brought to desolation as in a moment they're utterly consumed with terrors? At Psalm 73, the verses immediately following. Verse 17, story's not over. And so what did Achan do? He took the thing that was meant to remove the curse and in so doing embraced the curse and died as a result of it as did his family. We bring death into our homes. We bring death into our businesses. We bring death into our children's lives. We bring death into our finances when we don't honor God. In this stewardship campaign when only 5% of American Christians are tithing, you need to know this. In this stewardship campaign when the average believer gives 2.4% of his income to God, you need to know this. In this stewardship campaign on the heels of a recession when 24% of Americans stop giving, I'm talking about believers, stop giving anything to God you need to understand what you kept didn't bring you a blessing. It kept a curse upon your life. And you need to get rid of it and say, Here it is, God. Process it that I can live in my promised land and have favor. Amen. Take the curse away from my promised land. I'm concluding. So, how do you become a faith filled giver? Obviously, you must first realize what a faith-filled giver is. And I've been emphasizing that because there's a difference in a faith-filled giver and a faithful giver. A faithful giver just gives because God said it. A faith-filled giver gives expecting God to keep his word, amen. That's a whole lot like a faith. believer goes to church, but a faith-filled believer goes to church and meets God. Amen. A faithful person looks at the cross and says, Jesus died for me. A faith-filled person looks at the cross and says, I accept the atonement of his blood. World of difference between the two. And in faith-filled giving, you give expecting God to keep his promise. Know this. Faith-filled giving is several things, and I'm done. Number one, it is an act of devotion. When the little widow gave her all, it was out of devotion that she gave it. Know that faith-filled giving is, first of all, a service of devotion. Secondly, it is an act of obedience. If you're willing and obedient you will eat the good of the land. I'm obeying because I want the curse removed from my promised land, God. Thirdly, it is an act of partnering or partnership. You're taking God as your financial partner, just like Israel when they moved into the promised land by giving God Jericho, they were taking God as their partner to ensure they would get the rest of the land as He had promised. This is better than having Warren Buffett in charge of your portfolio. Fourthly, faith field giving is an act of investing. You're investing. Trust me. I've had any of y'all ever have investments go south? Anybody other than me? Anybody ever tell you about the huge returns you're going to get? And you had just the opposite of that. Come on, help me out here. I'm the only one. You said, now you're too ashamed to admit it. Liar, liar, pants on fire. You know what I'm telling you is the truth. Amen. We've all invested in things that turn south. But when you invest in the kingdom, just know this God's church will not go down. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Fifthly, it is an act of ownership. When you invest in God's kingdom, you're saying it's not just their church, it's mine also. I belong, I'm partnering with a vision. You're also telling God you own it all. I'm giving to you, I'm acknowledging your ownership and I'm giving to you what's yours. It's an amazing thing when you partner with God and you take ownership of his vision. The things that can happen in your life are astonishing. Sixthly, it's an act of assurance. Look, you can't guarantee your future. You don't know what tomorrow holds. But if you've made an agreement with the one who holds tomorrow, you're going to be okay. Amen. Because the psalmist said, I have been young and I'm now old. And I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed Begging bread. And number seven, as I've preached today, when you give, it's an act of warfare. God literally takes the curse upon your promised land, turns it into a blessing, and rebukes the devourer for your sake.